0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In this astute mix of cultural critique and biblical studies, John H. Walton presents and defends 20 propositions supporting a literary and theological understanding of Genesis 1 within the context of the ancient Near Eastern world and unpacks its implications for our modern scientific understanding of origins. Ideal for students, professors, pastors, and lay readers with an interest in the intelligent design controversy and creation-evolution debates, Walton's thoughtful analysis unpacks seldom appreciated aspects of the biblical text and sets Bible-believing scientists free to investigate the question of origins. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is yours truly, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is the last day of January 2022. This is episode 317 of this podcast, and I just read for you the publisher's summary on Audible for John H. Walton's The Lost World of Genesis 1 Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. It has a pretty good rating four and a half out of five stars, 1,045 ratings. I didn't give it a four and a half out of five stars, though. And I was expecting to, I was expecting to give it high marks. I didn't know anything at all about this book before it was recommended to me, and I was given a good recommendation from someone I know who hadn't read it either. I think I read it before he has just yet. He's interested in reading it, but with no rudeness, no meant, I didn't care for the book. By all means, Alex, if you're listening, keep on recommending audiobooks. We may disagree on this one, possibly. I'm not sure. Let me know what you think after you've read it. Uh, but needless to say, all that said, I did not agree with the premise of Walton's book here. So you may be wondering, what is the premise of Walton's book. Well, first off, let's back up a little bit. Typically, in my experience, the creation-evolution debate, the modern secular science versus the Bible debate, if there's a compromise position among Christians, it is typically the day-age theory. That's the one I'm most accustomed to running into among Christians christians is the day age theory and i'm relieved to see john h walton tackle that early on i did like his treatment of that where he basically says you can't right you can't do that it doesn't make sense that's not what the text says it is not saying yom here and meaning just any old period of time you'd like to insert into the passage when it says day It means day. These are literal 24-hour periods. By all means, follow the chronology. Trace it all the way back to 6,000 to 10,000 years. By all means, that makes sense. I'm with you there. Let's not quibble about the meaning of the Hebrew word yom and whether that is a literal 24-hour day-night cycle. It says morning and evening. That's pretty clear. Look at the context Look at the way that the word yom is used elsewhere in the text, elsewhere in the Bible, the Old Testament. It's a day. Okay, cool. Thanks, John H. Walton. I'm with you so far. Good deal. But of course, there's more. And I wasn't expecting it because, again, I didn't know anything about the book except A brief recommendation. Okay, cool. I'll check it out. Thanks. And then I was just along for the ride, right? Which I think is, that's an ideal way to read a book, typically. But rather than arguing semantics on the meaning of the word day, John H. Walton argues semantics on A different word. Let's not quibble about how long a day is. Let's quibble about what created means. What is being conveyed here? What's being communicated? What's meant by the author when it says that God created such and such on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, rested on the seventh? Now, you may be scratching your head. I was scratching my head like, wait a second, what? Did I miss something? Like um, maybe I was not paying close enough attention while I was taking the cushion and pillow covers off to wash them. Our couch gets a little dirty with all these children. And we like to eat while we have family movie night, watch a movie, eat on the couch. Sometimes we spill our food. It was time. It looks much better now. I got it all washed. You'll be glad to know. But I'm listening to this as I'm working on that, and I'm thinking, did I miss something? Like, Huh? What? So here's what it is. Here's how you can argue semantics on what is meant by the word created. Walton argues that what Genesis 1 is describing is not the creation ex nihilo of the material, the physical matter being described. What's being communicated is the creation of telos. In other words, God is stating, this is the purpose of this thing, this is the purpose of this thing, This is the purpose of this thing. But all of those things existed before God said what their purpose was, and they could have existed for any amount of time. So voila, abracadabra, the thorny problem of arguing about origins and how old the universe is and how all of the diversity of biological organisms on planet Earth came to be. No more, no more of that. Everybody can believe everything, and we can all get along with this newfangled interpretation of Genesis 1. Created? What does created mean, really? The original author wouldn't have meant physically created. No, 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 no. This is poetic, this is a literary device. You can't take it literally. This isn't the science textbook. And where I really like, got wise, I guess you could say, or, or started to have my light bulb turn on, where I started to think to myself, no, actually, I, I am hearing him right, was when he's talking about college students, and he is a professor, by the way, at Wheaton College, but he's talking about college students who come from conservative, theologically literal interpretation of the Bible backgrounds, upbringings, and they start taking science classes in college. And all of a sudden, they're in conflict. They're in turmoil because science is conflicting with the claims of the Bible as they have been taught to interpret their Bibles. And Walton wants to relieve them of that conflict no 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 you can believe both the claims of modern secular science and the bible believe both basically it amounts to however it happened god did it however it happened god did it now sometimes that's where we have to resign ourselves in our limited understanding in our limited faculties If the text is not explicitly clear, sometimes we just have to say, well, I don't know how God did it, but it says he did it, and I believe that he did it. But that's not quite the situation we find ourselves in with the first part of the book of Genesis. We don't find ourselves in a predicament where the text either says as vague a thing, as John H. Walton is saying, it says, Or just leaves it ambiguous. I don't believe in any event. I don't believe that it's vague. I don't believe that it leaves it a whole cloth mystery. And I also don't think that it makes intuitive sense to separate out the creation of the physical matter from the creation of meaning and purpose. Why is that intuitive? Why is that a given that you would separate those things out? The kind of gnostic quality to saying that the universe has existed forever or near enough or it may as well have and the only point at which things became good is when god said about six to ten thousand years ago here's your purpose but god was creating spiritual meaning there and that's good but the physical matter well yeah no the death and dying that can happen That can exist outside of sin and death being joined at the hip as the rest of the text indicates when you go forward into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes about this. Adam and Eve are not treated as archetypes, literary devices, symbols, even while their situation can have symbolic meaning and should have symbolic meaning in poetry, in our understanding of other things, it's a false choice. It's a false dichotomy to say that God either created the physical matter or he created the telos. He created the meaning. He created the purpose of these things. And for that matter, why would God have created, riddle me this, why would he have created the physical matter without a purpose. Why wouldn't he have created both and at the same time? God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. You're telling me that God created all of this physical matter at some distant past point, unknown, unknowable. And for millions of years, it had no purpose. But God is a God of order. Which is it? It doesn't seem like it goes together. It doesn't seem like those things fit. Now, John H. Walton does address head-on. He doesn't sidestep it or ignore it. He does address head-on the claim that young earth creationists make. When Paul says in the New Testament that sin entered the world by one man, death entered the world and the creation by the sin of one man, Adam, you can't have millions of years of death and dying and evolution prior to the fall. How does that figure, if there's death and dying, evolution is actually the way that God is creating for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, however many years you need, abracadabra. It's a metaphysical position. That's not a scientific assertion. Well, John H. Walton says it doesn't necessarily follow. It's a non sequitur that the death and dying that's being described there. Is the death of animals, the death of human beings physically. And for that matter, I don't think he believes in a literal Adam and Eve. I think he's okay with that being whatever we want it to be nebulous, amorphous, ambiguous, fluid. <laughs> whatever we want it to be, so long as. We stop arguing and bickering about it. That's all he cares about. There's a pacifistic quality to the whole book. And apparently it's a series of books. The Lost World of, fill in the blank, Adam and Eve, The Flood, The Torah. Now, I haven't read any of the others, but I have read a short write-up that Ken Ham did a few years back. And actually, initially, with the recommendation I was given, I thought that this book was recommended by Kinham and Answers in Genesis as a useful resource. Maybe it is recommended for some other reason somewhere else. Maybe I don't know. The one article I read by Kinham was definitely not recommending it, except in the hey, get a load of this sense. Like, we should know what arguments Walton is making here so that we can counter them, so that we can refute them so that we don't fall victim to this way of thinking but at least according to the write-up from Ken Ham the other books in this series make clear that John H. Walton doesn't believe in a literal flood he doesn't a literal Adam and Eve he's content to cede that ground consistently to the claims of modern secular science so long as they come with graphs and spreadsheets. And white lab coats, we have to make way. We have to yield to our betters. I think it's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate when we are trying so hard to make peace with people who hold our Christian faith in contempt that we're willing to risk compromising God's pleasure with us. I think that's very regrettable. But I think with that, with that said, as regrettable as it is, it's entirely common. No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man, we read. But God is faithful. There's nobody, no one, who is immune to that temptation to compromise our fidelity to God in order to curry favor with man, particularly if there is scorn and contempt and animosity if we don't. It might not be a selfish gain profit motive sort of a thing. It might be just a simple self-preservation thing, especially if you're in academia. If you're in academia and you hold to a literal interpretation of Genesis, you are a heretic for all intents and purposes, according to the mainstream secular humanist scientific consensus. You are a heretic. The orthodoxy is determined by the secular folks. They are a modern day clergy, academia, higher education. It is a kind of religion for a lot of folks. And especially if you are a professor, if you are an author, if you are a commentator, you depend to a great extent on the goodwill of your fellow faculty members and the administrators. And if all of a sudden they're taking pot shots at you and they're not backing you up and they're not supporting you and they're not aiding you, they're not giving you help and kudos because you hold to a literal interpretation of Genesis, well, that can really set you back. That can make it hard for you to operate in that space. And so what we find is, as a kind of precursor to the campus protests, when conservative pundits come to give speeches, you know, take a Ben Shapiro, for instance, getting invited to speak at a university by the college Republicans or whatever. They want him to come and speak. They're selling tickets. They're going to raise money. And they want their student body to hear the sorts of things that Ben Shapiro has to say. You get this protest, threats of violence, major disruption from the student body trying to shut Ben Shapiro up. The police have to be called. This has happened many, many, many times, not just with Ben Shapiro. I'm just using him as one example. This has happened with a lot of young conservative pundits in recent years. They go to American colleges and free speech and free thought and critical thinking and actual debate in a classical sense, making and evaluating and forming and testing and countering arguments is lost on the academic crowd but before it was lost on the student body it was lost on the faculty and you should read j gresham machin's liberalism and christianity i would love to hear what machin would say princeton theological seminary professor writing in the i believe it was 1920s so just about a century ago but writing against liberal theology coming into his seminary, coming into higher education across the U.S., across America, and infecting the centers for theological training for higher education, infecting the water supply at the source. You know, in ancient warfare medieval warfare let's say you were going against your neighboring king <clears throat> you've got a larger army lar- larger army assembled gathered together you've got siege engines you've got your forces they're all supplied you march on their fortified city and your neighboring king doesn't have all of his troops together. He didn't expect you to attack right now. He's going to have to call for reinforcements and muster troops from elsewhere in his kingdom. He'll send out riders. But he will pull everybody in behind the walls, shut the gates, and if he's got food and if he's got water, well, then he can buy some time while he waits for reinforcements to come, while he waits for allies or his vassals or whatever to show up and lift the siege. But suppose his water supply comes to the city, comes into the city via some freshwater spring outside the walls. And suppose the enemy besieging that city finds out paying the right people threatening and torturing the right people they find out where that spring is and then they poison it don't stop it no 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 don't don't block it let it flow but add something to it add a little something to it which the water will carry behind those walls and if the forces inside the fortified city, don't know that the water is poisoned. They'll drink it. They'll get sick. With any luck, they'll die. You take the city. Reinforcements or no reinforcements. You take the city. Now, J. Gresham Makin, in this analogy, was a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary 100 years ago. And he saw this happening. He saw the freshwater spring being poisoned all over the country. And heterodox at best, but really heretical positions on biblical truth, on the gospel, on various issues, political and social, which the Bible clearly teaches us what is right, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is praiseworthy. He saw theological liberals, progressives, adapting God's word to suit their social and political agendas, hijacking God's word, bastardizing it, corrupting it, and spreading false teaching. And he takes some very strong language to describe what needs to be done about it, And to describe the nature of the problem, you have to start with defining the problem. He likens theological liberals to modern-day Judaizers. They're hijacking what the gospel message is, what God's word says, for their own political gain, for their own fiduciary gain. And he says at that time, you had seminaries employing professors who were teaching young Seminary students who would be pastors and preachers and theologians, teaching them at the source to believe untrue things about God's word as a way of advancing a political agenda, a social agenda, a progressive social and political scheme, or at least curtailing the ability of theological conservatives to be able to form a cogent counter as they went out. If you can't train this little bird of prey to hunt for you, clip its wings is basically what it amounted to. And Machin says that the professors teaching those things should be removed. They shouldn't be teaching anybody this nonsense. It's bad enough that they believe it. They shouldn't be teaching anybody else. Certainly shouldn't be teaching future pastors, theologians. He says also that in denominations... If these sorts of men are found to be in positions of leadership, and they are trying to get leadership, if they're found in leadership, they should be removed from leadership. And if they're found to be pastors, they should be removed from pastoring. They are disqualified. They are blind guides leading those who follow them into ditches. And I'm sorry to say, because again, I was expecting to like John Walton's book, and while it teases my brain, I'm not in agreement with it, and I can't. I can't get with that. It is in the vein of the men Jake Gresham Machen was warning us about 100 years ago. It is a progressive, secular humanist having a form of godliness but denying its power sort of a take. When it says God created all things, you can't just pull in the myths of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians to make God's word mean what those mythologies would have meant when they said that their gods created. You can't do that. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. That's what he does. When it says in the publisher's summary that. He presents and defends 20 propositions supporting a literary and theological understanding of Genesis 1 within the context of the ancient Near Eastern world. What he means is we're going to defer to the pagan polytheistic cultures which occupied the historical context of ancient Israel we're going to defer to those sources when it comes to interpreting God's word. So this is like a double whammy of not only A, in the modern day, are you deferring to godless secular scientists as they tell you which parts of the Bible you can and can't believe according to their researches. No, that's not enough. We also have to go back to the Old Testament period and defer to the people who worshipped Other gods literally worshiped other gods in our day. The god is this anthropomorphized science. You might as well just erect a statue of Dr. Fauci, erect a golden statue of Dr. Fauci. Say it with me three times trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. I am the science, he says. Attacks on him are attacks on the science. The simple truth is that the pacifistic, kowtowing, appeasing folks want peace with the world. They want friendship with the world. And again, I I want to be gentle with them because it may be unintentional. It may be that they don't realize that they're doing that and they would be horrified to realize that they're doing it. But they take for granted that when... Smart people with advanced degrees mock Christianity. There must be something wrong with Christianity. If we believed that man is a fallen creature, if we believed in original sin by virtue of a literal Adam eating a literal fruit in a literal garden and literally bringing the curse of death with his sin, into God's otherwise good creation, we come to a very different conclusion about whether to trust the very smart people with advanced degrees. Ronald Reagan had a great line, trust but verify, very succinct. Trust but verify is an orthodox Christian conclusion. What do you do with fallen humanity? Trust but verify. In the love chapter in Corinthians, it says that love hopes all things, believes all things. That's not talking about naivety. That's talking about vulnerability. And yet the vulnerability described there is the kind that knows it's going to get hurt and has been hurt and forgives But not the kind of vulnerability that goes out harmless as doves, somehow thinking that being wise as serpents is untoward and unspiritual. I send you out as sheep among wolves. The kinds of men who write books like John H. Walton's here don't want to believe that there is such a thing as a proverbial wolf as a snake, as a serpent. I would beg them the question, who in our context is the wolf? Who in our context is the serpent that we're sent out among? One can imagine a retelling of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf in which the big bad wolf comes a-calling and he's going to eat up these pigs one by one the first pig he comes to says, you know what? It's really not your fault. You were born this way. Come on, I'll help you out. It's really (laughs) our fault as pigs that you want to blow our house down, us. That's what a book like this is like. Again, how does it follow that God would create the meaning, apart from having created the material. There's a kind of mind-body dualism inherent to supposing that those things can be separated, should be separated, ought to be separated, so long as we can avoid conflict. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men, does not mean that you go through this kind of intellectual contortionist exercise with the biblical text. Machin was right. J. Gresham Machen was right. Liberalism and Christianity. Trust the science for the Christian who believes that man is born with a sinful nature by virtue of the eating of that forbidden fruit that God had said, Do not eat. In the day that you eat, you will surely die. The Christians who believe that that means we are all born with a sinful nature. We are all now corrupted and tainted. Wretched man that I am, the good that I would do, Paul writes, I do not do. The evil that I would not do, that is the very thing that I do. Wretched man that I am, he says. Paul, Paul doesn't believe he's inherently good. He certainly doesn't believe that the general populace is inherently good, basically good, fundamentally good. And Christians who understand that and who read that and are transformed in the renewing of their mind by God's word in passages like that here trust the science and they say, ho, 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 Wait, 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 wait. I know what's in the heart of man because God's word tells me I'm acquainted with my nature because God's word has held it up like a mirror and I've seen myself. I've seen what I look like. And I also know what you all look like. I knew that well enough before, but now I see it in a different light because I actually have repented of my sins. I see how you're kicking against the goad. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, God's Word says. And the trouble is, and I, I wrestle with this temptation because <clears throat> I've been in these origins debates for a long, long time. And this is really, speaking of Genesis, this is really the Genesis of how I got into blogging and podcasting and writing a book and all that. Dealing with debates about origins, it hurts. It hurts to feel like a pariah in your own nation, your own society to feel second class, to feel ostracized, to be mocked, to be called a fake Christian because this kid over here was told by his liberal theology pastor that the most important thing in the origins debate is that nobody ever get upset with us, nobody ever get their toes stepped on, nobody ever look down on us or mock us, If that ever happens, if anybody ever gets upset in this debate about origins, that's when you know you've messed up. You've forgotten your first love. That's when you know. If people mock you, abuse you, throw you out of synagogues, flog you, take you before magistrates because you believe that God's word is true, that God be true and every man a liar... If you believe that, well, then that's when you know you've compromised your Christian testimony. Ah, right. Wait, wait a second. You're wait a second. You're conflating things. Jesus was talking about the gospel. Yes, and Kenham is not my Jesus. In fact, I think that's how I know I'm paying attention, and that this is what I really, actually, genuinely, personally believe is that I went into reading John H. Walton's book here expecting <clears throat> expecting to agree with it. Like I was told, Ken Hammond recommended this book. It's like, well, yes, he did, but not for the reasons that I was thinking. He recommended this book because he wants us to defend against it. It's a dagger in that you need to keep an eye on. So I came into this book expecting to agree with it, and if I were following uncritically the creation science that I was raised on, if I were following uncritically Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis, then I would have said, oh, wow, interesting. This just really opened my eyes. Now I, now I understand what I've been missing, what, what we've all, all of us Christians for thousands of years have been missing. Thank you, John H. Walton, for being smarter than all of us put together for all this time. The whole history of the church led up to this moment. You just unlocked it for us with the help of Babylon and Egypt and Assyria. Mm. As a point of order, remember in the Old Testament when God is giving the nation of Israel his law through Moses. He's bringing them to the promised land And he's telling them on the way, when you are in this land that I've promised you, when you are settled in the land of Canaan, do not worship me like the nations around you worship their gods. Do not do it. I do not want that. Do not, for instance, offer your sons and your daughters as a sacrifice to me. And the sharp eye of the atheist will say, whoa, wait, 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 wait. What about Abraham? What about Isaac? God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It was a test, okay? It was a test. But God didn't want the children of Israel misunderstanding him as being like the gods of the nations around. In fact, over and over again, and Michael S. Heiser's got a really great take on this in Supernatural, unpacks some of how, if you understand what the titles were for some of the pagan gods around Israel, as Israel was being delivered out of Egypt, brought into the Promised Land, if you understand some of the titles and some of the natural forces and phenomenon that these pagan gods were said to be in dominion over, then it unlocks the symbolic nature of God basically saying, oh, no, 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 that's mine, actually. It recasts the Old Testament in light of God having this cosmic war against fallen angels that he did give authority to, he did give a position of power to, and God, through his elect people, says, all right, give it back. I'm going to demonstrate my sovereignty that I'm the God of gods, I'm the King of kings, I'm the Lord of lords. You know that deity you guys worship? Yeah, he bows to me, actually. You bow to him, he bows to me. That's what God is saying through the miracles that he performs, the signs and wonders he performs in the Old Testament. The plagues in Egypt are strategically designed to say, no, that's mine, actually. It's an asserting dominance thing, which is awesome. But it seems to me as though John H. Walton, rather than doing that cool thing that Michael S. Heiser did in Supernatural, his book Supernatural, where, yes, it can be helpful to understand what the text is saying, rather than doing that, John H. Walton performs eisegesis here. He reads meaning into the text, which is not clear and apparent, and makes extra-biblical sources the rubric for our understanding, to totally turn on its head the clear meaning of Scripture. He says it doesn't really matter what we believe, so long as we believe God did it, but if that's how he really feels, then why did he write the book, and why is he so concerned about conflict between Bible-believing college students and their secular humanist science professors who are his peers at Wheaton and elsewhere. If it doesn't really matter what we believe, then what was the point of reading your book, actually? Why are you in the field that you're in? Why don't you pick some other field? If it doesn't really mean anything, it doesn't really matter. I like... To be clear, I like studying ancient mythology, ancient history. I like studying science. God's word needs to be the key to interpreting ancient mythology and modern science. God's word needs to be the rubric, not the other way around. God's the authority. God's the litmus test. God's word is the litmus test. That's why he gave it to us. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Study to show yourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth what we believe about God's word and about all truth is very, very important. But I don't think, with respect, I don't think that John H. Walton's book here is a good example of rightly dividing the word of truth. I think it has more in common with the subject matter of Jake Gresham Mockin's book. Check that one out. If you think I missed something, though, on this one, if I didn't understand it, if I read it too fast... By all means, call me out on it. Also, as an aside before we go, an apology for yesterday's episode on Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged. An apology, first and foremost, to my wife. She listened to it. And the kids were in and out, so maybe she was distracted while she was listening to it. Maybe she missed it. But she said after the episode was over, after I finished reviewing it with her, She said that she had expected me to talk more about the actual book. So I am trying in this episode to talk more about the book and not wander off into a whole lot of rabbit trails. Hopefully I didn't do too much of the wandering off, talking about Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged. All she could remember my saying about it was that it was comprehensive. So hopefully I did a better job with uh, Lost World of Genesis 1. All the same, if you think I missed something, if you think I'm not quite right on, feel free to hit me up, ask a question, make a counter-argument. I'm going to leave it there, though. It's a Monday morning. Time to go jump into the day, get some breakfast, see what everybody's up to. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.